But you know what? The variants, they're going to be the lesson learned, right? When we don't take it seriously that we need to vaccinate the world and we do do this kind of ridiculous 20% thing, which is going to only create more mutations and variants, likely, that could start coming after kids. They could kind of fray at the edges of what we've seen or the contours of this this virus. And, um, you know, he, he sort of saw this irony or this poetic justice in this, that as we go to grab up all these vaccines, these vaccines could become completely useless. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, Gordon, LaShawn, and Will spoke with Julia Anderson, CEO of CanWatch, the Canadian Partnership for Women and Children's Health, about her organization's work in global health, COVAX, and Canada's global pandemic response. In this second part of the discussion, Julia remains with us to talk about public polling, the importance of appropriately framing issues around Canadian foreign policy, and her career journey into international development and global health. This is where they left off. I had a a question, and Gordon kind of alluded to this earlier in terms of um, the importance of framing when it comes to advocating for foreign policy. And uh, we were talking about kind of the self-interest language versus investment versus Canada's role. And uh, CanWatch um, commissioned a national survey on, um, which was looking at the Canadian views on foreign and uh, foreign aid spending, and what it said from that report. There's a section on framing, and it was talking about um, kind of the best way on how to frame these for Canadians. And some of the best kind of uh, suggestions they had was to include stuff about the outcomes of Canada's contributions, the people they help, the specific problems that are being addressed, how our world is interconnected, and there's direct financial and health benefits for Canadians, for example. So when we're talking about galvanizing all these Canadians for their global support, um, why are these frames so important? It's kind of simple, and then it's super contentious. So when we've polled, and, and you're right, and it's up on our website, CanWatch has done quite a few, we pulled throughout the pandemic and we were polling before as well, on what's the best way to meet Canadians where they're at. We also just uh, initiated or just completed this amazing um, uh, process called, it was a deliberative democracy process with Stanford University, the Canadian International Council, um, and Global Canada. And um Yeah, it was fascinating. We were in conversation with over 400 Canadians, literally from coast to coast to coast. Like the, you'd be, you'd look on a screen and you would just see this, the beautiful diversity that is Canada, regionally, ethnically, age, gender, and you know, anyways, it was a fascinating process. And we got to ask them questions about um, their perspectives on foreign policy from a global health and an equity perspective. So when you put that together with their polling, and I'm not allowed to share the results of foreign policy by Canadians yet, but I can say that it's, it's to a degree it's consistent with their polling. Canadians believe that they have a moral obligation to show up in the world, and we have cover for that. Canadians don't understand the ways in which we are showing up in the world, so they're unaware of the ways that we're showing up in the world. And Canadians are also somewhat unaware of the degree to which their well-being, their ability to to thrive in this world, to exercise economic choices, to get jobs, etc., how tied up those interests are 
with people around the world. So there's a, a lack of understanding about that. So when you're looking at it from a public engagement or communications perspective, you kind of have to use one of those as your entry points. You kind of have to help people understand the problem before you just get to the, oh, by the way, Canada should spend more on, on development assistance. Like that, it doesn't mean anything to someone. You have to start from the beginning where Canada exists in the world and things are really bad in certain places. They are dramatically different than here in Canada. And I think we've kind of got this watered down notion of some of the existing misery of poverty around the world as maybe we become desensitized. I don't know why maybe we become desensitized, but we have a bit of a notion that, that things are just as bad in Canada. And that is fundamentally not the case. Like that is just, there are terrible things and inequities in Canada. Absolutely. Is the Canadian government 100% responsible for dealing with that? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And around the world, things are dramatically worse, right? And I think, and, and does Canada have a role to play? So you've got to start there. For some Canadians, this self-interest argument really works, right? This argument that your ability to have your morning coffee it, it doesn't grow in Canada. <laughs> Coffee does not grow in Canada. Your ability to enjoy your your Tim Hortons, your whatever, is linked to a worker somewhere else and their ability to get to work to plant seeds sustainably, all these things, right? So it's not this like self-interest that is so crude and, you know, and sort of dark and whatever. It's a self-interest that's that just links our existence as humans together on the planet and the kind of economic system and all this stuff. So my perspective, which is not shared uh, by everyone in this sector, is that we need to make all the arguments. We need to say all the things. We need to meet people where they're at, lay out a problem from many different angles, and then start to propose what we see as some of the solutions, including what they can do about it. Um, so I don't believe that the moral argument is the only argument. I don't believe that the self-interest argument is the only argument. And I don't believe that either of those arguments are perfect or without their various, you know, negative iterations and tentacles, and that we have to be careful of all those things. So yes, we have to be careful to talk about aid in a certain way. Yes, we have to talk about equity and center our work on equity and that matters, but we can still have conversations that meet Canadians where they're at from my perspective. Yeah, and that's that's a good one too, real quickly. Like the world is in- interconnected. Um, sure, we, we can get all 100% of Canadians vaccinated, for example. And then if you wanna take a vacation to Hawaii and they're not vaccinated there, you, you can't go to Hawaii. So sure, it's you, you're protected in, um in canada but if you want it the world is interconnected there's a lot of um, leisures and privileges we are afforded that depends on other countries also being in a good position so we must never forget that absolutely yeah and and i mean the kind of ultimate i was talking to a friend who's just deeply frustrated by the the grab you know the the rich country kind of grab at vaccines and we Mm. get it we're democracies you know we but sometimes it's it's disheartening and it's tiring to think about the way that 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 played out like just this nationalistic yeah that, that essentially the ACT didn't work exactly in the way that we wanted so we were kind of having this um conversation about 
yeah, just how challenging that landscape is and whatnot. And he said, but you know what? The variants, they're going to be the lesson learned, right? When we don't take it seriously that we need to vaccinate the world and we do do this kind of ridiculous 20% thing, which is going to only create more mutations and variants, likely, they could start coming after kids. They could kind of fray at the edges of what we've seen or the contours of this this virus. And, um, you know, he, he sort of saw this irony or this poetic justice in this, that as we go to grab up all these vaccines, these vaccines could become completely useless. So rather dark way of thinking, <laughs> rather kind of um, a way of thinking that, that you don't want to spend too much time stewing, stewing over there. But I do think that the point is clear, right? Like we're not saying vaccinate everywhere because it's you're not safe unless everyone's safe for fun. It is true and it is scientifically being demonstrated and playing out in a very dramatic way that is going to cost lives of Canadians mm-hmm. and of people around the world. Yeah, so you mentioned, um, and just to wrap up the, the COVAX, um, you know, the vaccine distribution, vaccine equity, um, part of our conversation, you'd mentioned the challenges around um, intellectual property um, and what unlocking that, what that could do um, for a global response to COVID-19. So I was wondering if you could talk uh, more specifically about what the TRIPS agreement is and um, what are the arguments for by, you know, whether the, the stakeholders involved uh, the arguments for and against activating the TRIPS waiver. And this is where I get into, well, I'm often in a space where I'm not an expert. So I uh, I love to kind of ask questions and my curiosity has, has given me a bit of a knowledge, but sometimes that can be dangerous. So I'm, I'm open if we've got any students of uh, intellectual property and the WTO, please, uh, please correct me if, if I'm wrong. But I mean, the, the, this is one, the troops waiver essentially sets out um, the, the rules by which we um, sort of engage in the global in global production of assets and goods. And what the TRIPS waiver, which is being demanded by pretty much every low and middle income country is on that list who wants the TRIPS waiver. And pretty much every high income country is has some sort of agreement, I don't know, behind closed doors, it feels like some sort of gentleman's handshake that they will not sign on to the TRIPS waiver. And if you look at the map, if you ever wanted to see like the the post-colonial or the colonial world uh, playing out, look at the map of the countries who want the TRIPS waiver and the countries who don't or who are neutral or undecided. But essentially what it would allow uh, countries to do is treat anything related to COVID, so all those commodities that we talked about earlier, as a public good. So, or that it's needed for the public good. So that would mean that companies, all that manufacturing capacity that I talked about, the latent sitting there, sleeping manufacturing capacity would, would be able to be engaged in a much quicker way. Right now, individual countries can activate it, but they have to go through a whole process and it's not been used, it's not been well used. This would just give a blanket. No, if it's about uh, masks that will protect you from COVID, if it is about ventilators that will be part of diagnostics or if, diagnostics, or if it's a part of, or sorry, therapeutics, or if it's a part of vaccines, 
uh, we will, we, the IP is shared and open. So Canada right now is being, has not said no, but has not said yes, and is being somewhat obstructive. So they're asking questions like the way that you do if you're trying to stall something. Um, they're throwing questions out into the world. So we would like Canada to either get out of the way or ideally sign on. I think it's coming in the States. I don't think you're going to have a Biden administration that doesn't, unless there's some third way that kind of gets developed, which WTO is talking about. I think you're going to see, there's been some lobbying. I think you're going to see a bold action on the part of the, the US administration. I think it'd be a little bit embarrassing if our previously like super bold feminist government was a taker on that policy, not a driver, right? So why, why like, Let's be the first developing country that takes sort of systemic racism seriously and says, nope, this is a way to localize solutions. This is a way to let countries lead their, you know, create their path out of COVID. And it's just smart. And um, so I'm hopeful that we can get somewhere with this government that has, mm -hmm. you know, and it wouldn't cost us anything. That's the other thing. Right. Yeah, I just had a quick question now following up what Julia said about the trips. So um, it, it's kind of it makes so much sense that like these countries would want to i guess sign on to it and you know kind of going back to our earlier points of um, you know every he not safe until we're all safe kind of mentality and, and equity and all that lens but so like it's 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 I'm, I'm struggling to grasp like my mind around like what's kind of like the the argument against it like why are is there so much like contention is it purely because you know um it's their intellectual property they don't want to share it or like what's what's the deal there um kind of from your, your perspective yeah i mean this is the question i ask every smart person that's dealing with this it's a real head scratcher it is a real head scratcher and the only the only kind of reasonable or yeah uh, reason is that there's money to be made and regardless you know, irrespective of the fact that it has been primarily public investment in these vaccines, so therefore they should be a public good. So we paid for them as a public, put a ton of money into research. And therefore, sure, I don't care if AstraZeneca or Pfizer makes some money on this, fine. But do they really have to take their profit margins from 80% to 110% if that means that you know, if that's the difference between sharing the technology or not. And so it is profit, it is 100% profit, that's the only reason. Then the kind of secondary interest that is at play there is if you as a country have deals with all these pharmaceutical companies, there's an incredible amount of pressure in order to, you know, stay in the, the favor of these pharmaceutical companies, which your population is 100% dependent on, um, there's a lot of pressure to not sign the thing. So it's kind of thought of as bad for business, although it wouldn't be bad for all business because all those manufacturing facilities, all those jobs that could be distributed around the world would be, you know, would be at play. Um, but it's bad for certain big business. And so that, and that, that particular big business at this moment has a lot of, um, you know, has a lot of power, has, has the power. Um, and it, I'm, I'm hesitant to say, although I, I, I do feel like they have as much power as national governments at this point to really shape the outcomes of the world. And that, you know, that's a scary thing for those who believe in democracy and 
all these kinds of things. So we're hopeful that we can get the Canadian government to stand up and be bold. Um, but I would love to peel back the curtain and really understand with more depth besides, like I said, from those kind of high level, what it looks like. Like, is it Pfizer calling Minister, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and being like, don't do it, don't sign it. Like, what kind of pressure, like, that would be a fascinating PhD to do something yeah. on the road. Imagine a, a movie being made on this, you know, in the future. <laughs> totally, so totally. cool. It's got it, like, it's got all the elements of palace intrigue. Unless there's something big that I'm missing, but I, I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think that's it. Pressure. Pressure from people in power. Are there any oppositional arguments towards coming from other organizations? And if so, what are they? And this is related to um, the ACT and the COVAX um, initiatives. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there's a, a broad recognition and investment, um, broad recognition, and there has been investment that has followed in the need for global vaccine distribution. No one argues that we've got to get a vaccine out to the world. Um, I think some of the the opposition comes in the how, what's the best way to do that? What's the fastest way to do that? And organizations are definitely very divided on that, right? And things like questions like when you go in to strengthen a health system in order to get a vaccine distributed, are you taking a health systems approach or are you taking a the piece of the health system, the silo of the health system that is going to deliver on this particular thing? So many organizations like colleagues at Nutrition International would say, if people don't have good nutrition, they don't have health systems that provide for adequate nutrition, the vaccine uh, the vaccine is less effective, the vaccine, you know, people are going to die at a higher rate, like we need to address this. So I think there's there's lots of disagreement and kind of good constructive argument about how you build the system that works the fastest. Um, but I don't think that there's major opposition to the idea of, um, you know, a coordinated body that's going to help us think through this. Um, and all of the big actors, as I think Michonne said earlier, are at the table um, around the, the, the ACT broadly. One thing that comes to mind is the tragedy of commons where um, when you, you build a system, um, if, it, if it is to work the way it's intended, you need buy-in from all the big players that are involved in the global stage so that you don't make those bilateral deals with manufacturers and circumvent the system and then rendering a lot of it obsolete. You mentioned there's a f- big funding gap there. That's, that probably has something to do with it. If you're, if you're outside of the COVAX ecosystem, you're less likely to be involved with that second AMC stream to, to provide some funds there. And then providing funds when there's no vaccine available is also not helpful if you've if you've dried up the market um you mentioned it was it's purely the the buying power and procured pooling resources so then you pull the resources and there's no vaccines to buy from that's also counterproductive so um yeah you 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 touched on all all those things it just had me thinking like um systems only work if they're being used the way it was constructed and then everything can just fall down if you have big players like the u.s and other countries that are not in it from the get-go yeah and i think there's a big moral question too there about diversion so you know we saw in italy and we saw in certain countries where health systems stopped working for everything but covid and so you know for anyone who has like me had a relative with cancer during this period 
or any serious health concern, are you comfortable with your health resources and systems being diverted 100% to COVID? Of course not, because, you know, that, that person needs the care, the immediate care. Um, but around the world, when systems are weak and when they're not well-resourced, um, those choices are, are choices. You know, are we going to vaccine, vaccinate people for COVID? Or are we going to vaccinate against um, TB? Are we going to vaccinate against smallpox? And yeah, I think that's a really important moral question that we have to ask when we're thinking with a mindset of finite resources. Um, and I think I would challenge us to break that break that mindset for sure one of the questions that i've been thinking and just been exposed to through work is like the the idea that the covax facility lacks um to a certain degree of transparency um in the process right it's like the um you know it's the like how how is this how are the shipments um, prioritized like what's like the the real behind the scenes kind of mechanisms and controls and just I guess governance structure that's that's it's in place for um, I guess the, the allocation to be to be made. I think that's um, I, I and I think that's a very dangerous grounds for for politicization and really just um you know turning this what's supposed to be a very technical and um it's collectively collective kind of mechanism and structure into like a a muddy and messy you know place of politics. Yeah, I think so. And then the transparency issue is is definitely has been taken up by civil society. My quick comment on it is I trust many of the players at the table to take a non-political and smart approach. I think they need to be they need to make transparency the goal because it's a non-democratic space, right? And it unlike like some of the spaces within are democratic spaces, but it's a non-democratic space. Um, but I, I trust them to make smart decisions. I do not trust them to move quickly. There are heavy and big bureaucracies. And so when I was kind of in that early advocacy for, for civil society to be a part of things or not, I got just a churning feeling in my stomach. Cause I'm like, I want to argue that we should all be there and that transparency should be the number one thing, but I also need them to move faster than they've ever moved before. Mm-hmm. And so in as much as that's a trade-off, I erred on the side of the just go fast, but it doesn't all it does you know, scholars would argue it doesn't have to be a trade-off. I felt like I knew a lot about the COVAX and TRIPS waiver, but I think you can never know enough. So I know after this, I'm going to um, dig into it a little bit deeper to learn about some of the, the pitfalls and the advantages of doing it. So uh, thanks for enlightening us with that conversation. Um, however, as a significant portion of our audience, our students and early career professionals, um, many of them have been inspired to enter the field of global health uh, during these unprecedented times. And given that we have you here with your wealth of uh, leadership experience and subject matter expertise and your inspiring uh, career journey, uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't get a chance to ask you about um, your journey into where you are now, some of those career options in in international development that a typical student may not be aware of. Um, so we can start off by, you know, how you got um, you talked a little bit about how you got interested in international development, but if you could just talk us through um, your journey to discovering um, through your various roles that you've had and um, ended up where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So the first piece of advice, which um, kind of frames out my career story that I give to people interested in one thing or passionate about one thing is that your career can take you in a lot of places that seem 
like a weird fit for that thing. And that's okay. Take what you can and learn. Maximize every opportunity wherever you are, even if it's at Starbucks. Um, and that's where you are at that moment. You know, can you get managerial experience? Can you get cuss like whatever it is? See yourself as a sponge for transferable skills mm. and learn how to spin your transferable skills, which is, I think, um, one thing that that you know I learned and was taught and was able to do to some extent in order to jump around in my career. So I worked. Uh, I started out uh, on a kind of internship type thing with a small organization called Jamaican Self Help. Is a Canadian-based human rights organization that worked in uh, the Car- Jamaica and the Caribbean, and so I smart- started working with youth and policy issues. And we were so much like I'm doing now. Um, we were advocates for the Make Poverty History campaign and for a variety of things. And then, having been a receiver of government funding for some, I worked there almost five years. I wanted to go sort of peel back the curtain. Um, I don't know if I was that strategic at the time, but that's how I describe it now. Um, I think I also just needed to make some money. Um, so I went and worked for government at a granting agency. Um, and then I had a really unique opportunity to uh, to work as the director of human rights at a university, which was essentially taking human rights complaints. I don't know if you've engaged with, which I, you know, I thought was something very different. And when I got into the job, realized what it was. And um, yeah, it was this kind of fascinating experience to actually be working with the, within the legal limitations and opportunities of the human rights system. Um, and during that whole time, I was sitting on boards of directors and, um, you know, always kept my foot in the door on, on international development issues through volunteer work. Right. And that's how I, I kept the motivation up and then landed uh, at CanWatch uh, about five years ago. Um, yeah, and have taken a variety of roles. So I can, you know, and you hear people that are kind of like, I would call myself, I just turned 39, I would call myself like mid-career. Um, mm. I hope I'm mid-career. I hope I have many more years of working. Um, and you hear people and their story sounds like it makes so much sense, but like, it really didn't make sense when it was happening. And there was right. all these like right. personal reasons I needed to stay in Peterborough where I live. I needed to like, I had a, a, a daughter through that whole process. I had her when, when I was 19. So like, you know, the kind of normal trajectory for an international development student was not mm. available to me. And so I had to kind of grind through in this different path. But everyone I talked to who's where kind of, you know, in my same age bracket, they felt that way too. And I was like, I thought it was just me and my specific circumstances. Everyone's taking jobs and doing things that doesn't quite fit. Um, so yeah, I just, I encourage that as a strategy rather than as a something you feel you're kind of caged into. Right. And the, the important thing, lesson learned from there is a lot of people might end up in a job or a certain career field that they're not as interested in they're a little bummed out that it's not their ideal thing but what you're saying is um, as much as that might not be where you want to be at that moment try to pull out those transferable skills that will get you to where you want to be and I think that's something that even in our conversation with students they look at the end goal rather than the process of getting to the end goal and I think that approach is very helpful sometimes the issues we discussed can feel too out of hand for an everyday person how can we help engage others to um, help such issues yeah, I think that's a really great question. I think um, 
it depends who, who those others are and where they're at. So I, I really encourage people to take your convictions to the dinner table, which for mm. me, um, in my broader family has been a, you know, a, a, at times a real challenge because I, I deal with issues like sexual health and reproductive rights that do not resonate with my family in a yay for you that you're working on these issues sort of way um, with a lot of my family. And so I encourage everyone to sort of take your issues to the dinner table and and have the conversations, right? Like we need to commit ourselves to difficult conversations and sometimes the desire to drive action skips us over that part where we have the conversation. So it's easy enough to sign a petition, to give $5, to, you know, do something and be like, okay, I've done it. And what we've seen with everything from, you know, issues of Black Lives Matter and systemic racism to the Me Too movement is that we're missing the part and the instinct and the skills to have the conversations. So my biggest encouragement to you is to just practice having conversations with people about mm -hmm. these issues and even if you're not the expert being curious mm -hmm. what are their do they think Canada should be doing something around the world do they hear about you know what's going on right now in India what do you think of this right and see where those conversations take you and then from there there's a plethora of actions you can take we've got great members um, you can check out on the CanWatch website where there's everything from engaging in campaigns to engaging in, um, you know, donations, volunteerism, all that kind of stuff. But to me, if, and this is why I was really passionate about the Foreign Policy by Canadians project, we need to learn how to have conversations again about tough topics that we need to complexify. Stop trying to simplify everything and get like comfortable with the messy complexity of, of the world we live in. Uh, what is the best way to use LinkedIn for career connections? I'm so bad at LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Or or broadly. Or, or broadly, what you said yeah. Is broadly. Yeah, I love LinkedIn, but I'm so bad at it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say networking more broadly, come with a specific question. So they kind of generalized networking that's like, hey, I want to get to know you. That's great. Like, I'll, I might add you to my LinkedIn. Fine. But if, if you're actually purposefully seeking out, I want to grow my network of people in this that are working in Canada on global health issues and you send me that message and say look I'm really trying to understand this landscape for this reason and this is my personal interest in it you're you're going to get a lot better of a response so mm -hmm. random networking as much as it's fun is not um, I don't think it doesn't turn heads in the way that you want to turn heads and to get that and, and you don't need to Going big is not helpful. Having a few key connections who are willing to work with you, um, key mentors, I think is a lot more helpful. Fantastic, yeah. Purposeful in targeting networking. As someone with an interest in global health, I often find myself conflicted with how global health as a whole is conducted. For example, it can be paternalistic, neo-colonial. How do you manage this conflict either internally or within your organization and colleagues? Answering that quickly is a challenge. <laughs> very true. We're, we keep our head up about about the very how very true your statement is, um, and we're actively looking for ways and to build best practices and to push our members um, hard. We push hard on kind of this um, equity centered, human human rights centered, feminist approach 
to global health that we think will fundamentally revolutionize um, and, and challenge a lot of the, the kind of, yeah, the really colonial, negative, racist um, um, realities of the way global health plays out right now. So I'm with you on the conflict. I'm with you on the um, the challenge, and I think it's our job at Ken Watch to push not not kind of, but hard on these issues to make it better. We, we have a lot of aspiring women public health professionals in our audience, and there are countless reports such as the, um, the 2020 Global Health 50-50 report that highlights a lack of gender equity and, uh, sorry, gender inequality and uh, diversity in leadership and senior management positions. And so one of the quotes from that report Um, confronting the 70, 80, 90 glass border in global health. So more than 70% of our leaders in our sample are men, 80% of our our nationals of high income countries, and 90% were educated in high income countries. Given that you're the CEO of CanWatch and have had a very interesting career path, as we all heard, um, do you have any tips or advice to these women who often have to face countless barriers in their workplace, among other places? And um, what are what are some things that workplaces can do to ensure gender equity and diversity in leadership? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. We're we're doing a ton of work on confronting um, patriarchal systems that that create space uh, for men and not women. I think as the leader of this organization, I've forced myself and literally invite myself, which I did this week. Uh, into spaces that are hold, held and occupied by, by men. And I set myself up for the challenge of those spaces through, you know, like literally meditating in advance of them, like to go into an all male space where everyone is more credentialed, but, you know, often older than me and, and things like that. I have to set myself up and I try to create those um, protections for my staff as well. We, we happen to be an all-female team at Kenwatch um, at this moment. And, you know, I really we try to talk about kind of the personal side of that. And then we try to force ourselves into spaces and change the look and feel of spaces um, that are traditionally held by men. I think, you know, where we're having conversations right now is is about about race and diversity, and we're really challenging ourselves. And I, I'm, you know, situate myself as a um, very privileged and white woman uh, who's come into the this space with a whole host of privileges. So I'm really challenging have been challenged to think about how to create as a leader, what it means as a leader to create an anti-racist space and to elevate voices. It is my commitment and my my life's work. And I do not have the answers to this question to sufficiently, you know, it's a bit of a head scratcher for me when I look around at the brilliant women um, that exist, you know, and gender diverse people that exist on this planet. And I go, why? Why is there still this wage gap? Why is there still, you know, and then I walk into one of these meetings and I feel it. I feel all the whys play out in my own physical experience. Um, Yeah, so that's my, that's the shortest answer I can give. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, From having this conversations, uh, um, this conversation, Julia, what are one or two key takeaways um, in a broad sense that you want each of us listening to take away from this discussion? 
I think just be encouraged that we're having the conversation. And I, I'm really grateful um, to the three of you for the podcast, for facilitating these conversations. I'm grateful to everyone who showed up and is asking questions. And I, I just, the takeaway is let's, let's do more. Let's do more of this kind of thing and let's get people who are not me uh, into this space and, and having these conversations. And please do, for those listening or engaging, uh, reach out. I'm not always the best at getting back to people right away and engaging, but I, I am interested in your story, what you're passionate about, what's driving you to, to show up and listen to the podcast. So if you want to share that with me, maybe we can try to get a, a conversation going. Absolutely. Well, uh, back to you as well. Thank you for um, talking to us, enlightening us as the podcast host, as well as the um, audi- our audience on all corners of the world that took time out of their saturday morning to um learn from um, your expertise and your knowledge and your your experience uh, in the area of global health and international development so we would like to thank you uh for taking the time and sharing your knowledge with us thank you so much thank you very much thanks for having me thank you for listening to the public health insight podcast your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.